Good morning. Beautiful day. We are thankful that you are here to worship with us. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. Let's pray as we go to God's Word. Father, what a beautiful passage that we can read and we can think about deeper this morning. I pray that you would help us by your Spirit, by your power, that you would help us to understand the message, the text that we've heard this morning. God, we're thankful that we can come into this place and that we can worship you, that you truly are God with us. And so, God, we pray that as we hear your word, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would draw us closer to you no matter where we find ourselves this morning, no matter what we face this week, no matter what we've experienced in our past. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, God, because we want to be changed by the truth of your word, by the working of your spirit. So God, even now we pray that you would work in a powerful way. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. So this month we have been focusing on Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas. A couple nights ago my son Truman asked me, he said, why was Jesus born in a stable and why was he placed in a manger? Like why that setting, why that scenario of all places, is that really where God wanted his son to be born? But it is so significant that Jesus came in the dirt of a stable, wrapped in rags. The obscurity of where he was born and the life that he was going to live, it communicates the song that we've been singing, that God is with us in our obscurity, in our struggle, in our destitution. God came to us and he relates to us and he connects with us relationally because he was born in the lowest of lows, making this connection with us. And so this is our focus this month. Christ who has come in obscurity to relate with you, no matter what your background is, with me, with all of us. And it's who we worship today. It's who we worship this month. And so as we have worked through the different weeks, we've lit the different candles signifying the light that is coming in the darkness. Each week, we've had a focus on a different popular mainstream word to kind of focus in a little bit more closely. We've talked about hope, this confidence that we can place in Christ because he is the promise keeper. That we, of all the foundations and all the bases that we could wrap the anchor of our hope around, there's only one that's going to keep us secure. 
There is only one that is stable, that has kept promises generation after generation after generation. And that, that base or that foundation is Christ. Now, we can hope in anything, but nothing will keep us secure like Christ. And Christmas is a good time to think about Jesus being our hope because at Christmas we see the fulfillment of so many prophecies, of so many promises that have come true. And so he's our hope. We hope and we are confident that God is going to strengthen us in despair. we're, We're hopeful and we're confident that in the end of it all, darkness isn't going to win, that things are going to get better. And so we place our hope in the promises that Christ has given us. And last week we talked about faith, fully relying on who Jesus said he was, that he has come to forgive us of our sins. And we are fully relying on the truth of Jesus, that he came and that he said he would forgive us and that he died and he rose from the grave after being crucified. And so we, we latch on to, we fall back into completely trusting what Christ said, who he is. And we talked about the carabiners and the rope and the harness as a picture for faith. And that we have, we have latched those things to Christ and we are confident in the evidence that we see that it's not blind faith. That we are, we're not clueless about how God has revealed himself, but we have studied and we understand the evidence around us. But at the end of the, end of the day, it is still us fully relying on Christ. And this morning, we focus on joy. Joy is a special word for me. The two most important ladies in my life share this middle name, Caroline and my wife, if you were wondering who those two ladies were. Sorry, Mom. It's a special word for me because it's, the heart, it's at the heart of a ministry that's had profound impact on me personally, on me as a pastor. John Piper, Desiring God, is the heart, the core of the, their ministry is Joy, walking with Christ in joy for who he is. It's a word that's significant for this church. If we are going to be a church that passionately pursues Christ, we have to understand joy. Because without joy, there is no passion. And if you just consider the importance of this idea of joy in the Bible. It's prominent everywhere. To the Israelites in the Old Testament, in Psalms, you see the command after command after command. Rejoice, be glad in the Lord. Shout for joy, serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 102. Shout for joy, Psalm 32, 11. Not just Israel, the, the theme of joy for the nations. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, Psalm 67, 4. Let the heavens be glad. Let all the earth rejoice, Psalm 96, 11. Jesus demands us to be joyful. He commands it. He tells us to walk in joy. Leap for joy, Luke 6, 23. 
Rejoice and be glad, Matthew 5, 12. Paul demands it. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. Be glad and rejoice. Rejoice, again, I say rejoice. We are sorrowful, yet we rejoice. And I think as you study kind of the whole landscape of the scripture, you will see that God is interested in joyful followers of him. Show me the follower of Jesus that doesn't have joy in the scriptures. You're not, you're not going to find it. And so it's part of walking with Christ. And I think it's important for us to really drill down on this idea of of joy and to think about it. So what we're going to do this morning, I want to define what joy is, and then I want to look at three ways, three things that joy allows us to do, or three things that joy causes us to do, according to the, the passage that was read to us in the Christmas story. Okay, so let's start talking about the definition. Now, I love, well, let's see, how do I say this? When you start talking about the definition of joy in a Christian circle, in a Christian, in a room like this where we've been in church for some significant amount of time, it's very popular when thinking about joy to make a distinction between joy and happiness. True? Is that true? You've heard that before? There's a difference between joy and happiness. It usually goes like this. Joy is in Christ. Everything else that happens is more superficial. That's happiness, and that's not necessarily from God. Happiness is a feeling. Joy is not. It's a state of mind, a state of being. Happiness comes and goes. It's fleeting, but joy is everlasting. Happiness depends on circumstances, or it depends on other people, but true joy is a gift from God. Have you heard this before? Okay, it's a pretty popular way of understanding joy and understanding happiness and the dif- difference between these two. The only problem with this, and maybe you see where I was going before I'm even saying it, the only problem with this is it's not a biblical idea. You study the differences between joy and happiness in the scripture, and you don't see this distinction. In fact, you see the word joy and happiness used almost interchangeably hundreds of times in the scripture. And when I say interchangeably, I mean you see the the same two words for joy and for happiness used in the same verse to describe the same thing. We talked about this whenever we talked about the Psalms, when we talked about synonyms and parallels. A couple examples of this. Esther 8.16, for the Jews it was time of happiness, time of joy, time of gladness and honor. Jeremiah 31.13, I will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. Psalm 92.4, you, O Lord, have made me happy by your work. I will sing for joy because of what you have done. There's hundreds of these types of verses where you see happiness and joy kind of living next to each other. And the purpose of using these two terms isn't to make some distinction between what we experience and what the world experiences. Instead, it's the same word used to describe the joy that's found in Christ through his grace. And so I don't know that it's helpful to make the distinction. 
that we experience something and the world experiences something else and what they think is, is joy is not really joy. We kind of make this separation between what we have and what they have. Instead, I think it's probably the most helpful to say that all joy and all happiness at any level from anything is God's happiness. That it's a gift that God gives all people. In Acts, it's talked about as this idea of common grace. I'll read the passage, Acts 14, 17, talking to a large audience. Paul says he did not leave himself without witness, talking about God, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He's saying God has given all people, all religions, all beliefs, all backgrounds, all nationalities, whether you follow him or you don't, he has given you gladness, relational gladness, creation gladness, family gladness, weather gladness. And this is, this is, a, this is God giving us his grace. Now, there is a difference between these different types of joys. And I do think it's important for us to, to think about the different things that can bring us joy from God. I mean, we experience all sorts of joys, right? We experience all sorts of things that make us happy, that make us glad or joyful. And just in general, the more significant something is, the more special something is, the more joy we get from that thing. Okay, let's just think about this. Typically or generally, the more significant something is, the more special something is, the more joy we get from this event. So I was even eating an avocado this week. I like avocados. It was, a good, it was just a good day. It was ripe. You never really know. You, you cut it open, and it was, it was delicious. And I was happy about that. Okay, my son got home from, from school that day, and we got a report that he was kind to someone who was struggling. He showed kindness to someone who wasn't in a great situation. Okay, I love avocados. Okay, but the joy, the happiness, the gladness at the report that my son has been kind outweighs the joy of an avocado. That's a vegetable, right? It's a vegetable, yeah. Of course, yeah, it's a vegetable. I love drinking coffee. I love a cup of coffee in the morning. It makes me happy to get up, to push the button, to wait for that cup of coffee. But it doesn't compare to the joy of seeing my wife and my daughter come home from a weekend being away. There's no comparison. But there is a comparison. I really like coffee, but I like you guys so much more. I'll drink coffee and be with you. It's just wonderful that I can do both. And so we, we understand this, right? We understand. We get joyful and happy and glad about 
insignificant things like the weather, our sports, our relationships, our successes. But we also can understand that that joy in relationships and weather and work and and what in vegetables or whatever gives you joy, we understand that those little joys can quickly go away. That these smaller joys quickly can disappear if some other form of discouragement comes to us. And so we understand that we can be happy in a minute, but we can get a phone call and that that little happiness over whatever it is can quickly go away. Okay, these little joys are not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about what I'm going to call gospel joy. Big joy. Here's my definition that I, when I say gospel joy, the transcending, deep-rooted gladness felt when you've placed your hope and faith in Christ and you have experienced his peace. This is the joy when we put together those last couple weeks of sermons that our hope, our stability, our truth comes from Christ, and without that anchor connected to the, well, the piano is what I used, but to Jesus, that there is no hope. When we realize that our hope is in a God who understands the details of our lives, it produces joy. When we put our faith in someone who has saved us and forgiven us, who has come to earth for us, when we place our faith and we let go on the side of that mountain and we fall in complete reliance to him, that experience produces joy, gospel joy. And it's transcendent. It rises above the potential of other discouragements kind of taking away these other smaller joys. It's bigger than when we understand that our unrepayable, unforgivable sins have been taken care of at the cross, it creates joy. And so what I want to do is, I, with this big definition in mind, I want to look at the story of Christmas. We're actually going to and we're going to look at three things that joy causes, three things that people with true gospel joy do. We're going to actually start in Luke 1, 46. This wasn't the passage that we reread this morning, but I feel like it's so central to the concept of joy as Mary is responding to the belief that she's placed in who God is and what he said he's going to do with her. She sings this beautiful song. And we see through this example that joy is going to worship. Look at Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Okay, verse 48 is why. Why am I doing these things? 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. How does Mary respond to her faith and what God is doing in her life? She worships. She overflows with worship. And the way that this worship is described is she's rejoicing. Okay, this word rejoicing, it's the same word for joy. It's the verb form of joy. It's this overflow of joy that causes you to sing and to proclaim the joy that you have experienced. And I like the word, the second word that's used to describe this rejoicing. Anyone pick it up in verse 46? What's the, what's the same word used to describe rejoicing in verse 46. Any of my kiddos know? Glorify. Glorify, that's another word. What's the word in verse 46? My soul magnifies. And I like how John Piper talks about this. Okay, kids, you looking up here? All my kids, take a break from your doodling. See up here, got a tiny little, this is a little bit smaller than I was thinking, little microscope, okay? If you were to use this to magnify, okay, you would put a little something here, you'd look through it, and it's going to make whatever you look into, whatever you're looking at, it's going to be very, very, very small. And when you look at something through a microscope, it's going to be something very, very small that because you're using a microscope, it's going to become something much bigger, something you can see. Here's a couple of examples of things that, uh, pictures of what it would look like to look through a microscope. Is it up there? See, that's called bacteria. Anyone have a guess where this bacteria was found? This is not encouraging for any of us. I don't have it on me. It's your iPhone. So a, a college in England decided to look for some bacteria, and as they were looking and trying to find the best place, this is what they found, the, the iPhone. And as they studied it and they magnified upon it, things that they could not see with their eyes, they could see with the microscope. Now, kids, what's this called? Telescope. This was a birthday gift. This was a birthday gift given to me a couple years ago. And I remember going out, it was freezing cold, looking at this super moon. Okay, the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Okay, a telescope is looking at something really, really, really massive, like the moon. I think I have a picture of the moon. And when you use a telescope to look at something massive, what it's doing is it's allowing you to see it better for what it is. And so when, when Mary says, I magnify the Lord, I magnify the Lord, she's not saying 
that I'm using a microscope to see a really small God and I'm going to magnify and make him bigger. That's not what she's saying when she says, I will magnify the Lord. She's saying, I am looking at a really big God with a telescope. I am realizing how great and how awesome he is. And I'm going to tell everyone about what I see. We are called to be telescopes, not microscopes. That we are looking and beholding a great God and with our joy, we are responding to who he is. Why is Mary joyfully worshiping? This is a whole nother thought in of itself, but let's look there really quickly. Look at verse 48. Why is she magnifying and why is she joyful that she is singing out loud? Verse 48. She's saying, I'm magnifying God because of what he has done for me. He owes me nothing, yet God's given me everything. This is grace. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has called me blessed. All generations will call me blessed. And so she's saying, I am worshiping God. I am magnifying him him out of joy because of what he has done for me. Look at verse 49. I magnify God because of who he is. I am joyfully worshiping and responding to God this way because of who God is. The three attributes that she describes in these verses. God is mighty. God is the king who is above us and in front of us fighting for us. He's holy. He is white-robed, he is completely perfect in other and outside of us, and he is merciful. The picture of a mother bird wrapping her wings around her babies. God is merciful, and so she's saying, I magnify God for who he is. And then in verse 50, I mean, I just, this verse is pretty much life-altering. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, like we are included in this song, that we can worship like she has worshiped because of what God has done for us in Christ. Not only does joy worship, but joy surrenders. To our text that was read this morning, we're not going to read it again, but the text that was read this morning was Matthew 2. Can we put the the verse on the screen. It's actually verse, well, verses 1 through 12 really capture this whole scene of the wise men. The wise men coming to where Jesus was born. They worship him. They, they give these gifts. And as I studied this passage this week of the Magi or the wise men, I mean, this is a really interesting passage. I mean, it really is. Like, if you're writing this story, If you're creating how this is going to all kind of come happen, why include these three men? Actually, we don't know how many men. Why include these men? I mean, there's so much about this story that we really don't have the answers to. We really don't know how many came to see Jesus. Maybe you you guys knew that, right? We know there are three gifts, but we don't actually know there are three men. We really don't know where they came from. They came from the east. 
We really don't know how they found Jerusalem. How they see the star and the star that they see causes them to go to Jerusalem. Maybe they were aware with the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe God revealed it to them in a dream. But we really, we don't know. We don't know a lot about these wise men or these magi. But the story is so encouraging because here's what we do know. These men, I'm going to say three men, were not Jewish people. These were Gentiles. These three men, they weren't kings. We do know that. But these three men were wise philosophers who understood the working of the world. They studied the stars. They studied the planets. They were aware of the creation. And for whatever reason, when they saw this star, they knew it was something different, something special, something significant. And so they know to go to Jerusalem. But the point of this whole story is that God is teaching us that his message of hope and faith and joy and peace is not just for the Jewish people. It's for people from far away with a completely different background, even for the Magi. And so once they realize to go to Jerusalem, and they finally figure out to go to Bethlehem, their response to finally getting to where Jesus was born is interesting. Verse 10. We'll look at verse 10. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced, exceedingly with great joy. Okay, we, we've just said this, we just made this point. Joy causes you to worship. So they are overcome with joy in a little, a little phrase that is packed with joy. They rejoiced with joy, it's redundant. I mean, they are overflowing with joy on top of joy. And it's not just a little bit, it's great joy. And they finally get there. They, they don't even go inside yet. They just get to where the star has finally taken them and they worship and they rejoice and they magnify God with joy. And then they go inside. And what do they do? They see the baby, they fall on their faces and they give Jesus gifts. Now, we don't have time to look in the historical significance of these gifts, but it's interesting is that There's been all sorts of attempts to kind of unravel the symbolism of the three gifts. What's equally interesting is that there's not a lot of biblical evidence for the different meanings that we have traditionally given these gifts. I mean, we can read into the gifts all day long about the gold and the the incense and the myrrh and and the different aspects of Jesus' ministry that they were aware of and thinking of and, and I think that's fine, but we want to be careful not to go too far with the text. The text doesn't tell us that. But I think the point, the reason that this is included is that it is simply a response of their worship and their joy that they are surrendering and giving offering to this Jesus, to this baby. I like how John Piper describes these gifts, and I'll put it on the screen. It says, these gifts are intensifiers of desire for Christ himself in much the same way that fasting is. When you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying, the joy that I pursue, verse 10, is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for things, but for yourself. 
And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more, not things. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure and not these things. Wow. Read that last line again. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might actually enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. Joy. When we experience the joy of hope and the joy of faith of what Christ has done, it causes us to fall on our faces and surrender, to give all to him and say, God, you are worthy. I give you everything. This is what gospel joy causes. It's the story of the Booker family who I met several months ago. A family of six, four little kiddos. I mean, they're they're just sweet, happy family, giving up everything they have here to go to Indonesia as missionaries, the most Muslim nation in the world. Gospel Joy says, you, God, are everything. You have given me everything. I will surrender what I have here, and out of the joy of what you've done for me, I will go to a really challenging place. And it's not just big surrendering. I mean, it's that, that probably doesn't apply to a lot of us. Gospel joy produces little surrendering. I will surrender some sleep to get up, to read your word, and to get on my knees and to pray because you're worthy of that. I will surrender and give up time on my device or on the TV or whatever it may be. I will surrender these little things because the joy that I have with you and for what you've done for me is so much greater. And lastly, joy transcends. Joy transcends. Christmas is such a positive, happy, merry time of the year. I mean, it is. It's such a fun and happy time that our culture kind of makes it look this way. Movies make it look like this. I watched a movie last night that was full of happy and nauseating Christmas happiness. It's like this perfect little season, this perfect little time, all families, the snow, everything is just perfect. And then we take this this perfect little Christmas idea that we have in our culture and we take it to the scriptures and we just picture Mary just so happy and clean and and all these wonderful things. And and the problem is, is that's just not realistic. I mean, we know, right, that our Christmases aren't like the Christmases we watch on the movies. Like, it's not perfect. There's still dysfunction. There's still pain. There's still problems. You read the Christmas story and you will quickly realize that the Christmas story is not just about happiness and and all these wonderful things happening. In fact, the Christmas story is full of really challenging things. I mean, think about Mary. We've talked about Mary, a single young woman 
pregnant. Okay, the labels, the looks, the persecution, the shunning she would have received from her family, the, the whispers, the, the reputation that she would have gotten. I was thinking about the story in Matthew 2.13 where, where Mary and Joseph are sleeping and Jesus is a little bit, old, is a little bit older at this point. And, and an angel wakes up Joseph in the middle of the night and what does the angel tell Joseph to do in the middle of the night? I guess time to leave. Like pack your bags and go. And the text says he was woken up by this dream. And in the, at the same time, like in the middle of the night, he wakes up his family and they, they leave their home. They leave their family. They leave what they know in the middle of the night to flee to Egypt. Where are they going to live? I mean, what are they going to do? How are they going to survive? I mean, there's not much happiness in this dream that, that Joseph receives. Or the story that I feel like is often just skipped over at Christmas. The story that comes next after this dream. The ruthlessness, the mass murder of the children under two in Bethlehem. Just doing a little bit of study on how many children under two that would have been. It's a small town. It's an obscure little town, but most historians say probably around 20 little boys were killed. And it's like, it's not a perfect little happy Christmas, I mean, loss of relationships and family and life, jobs and community. Yet the overarching picture of Mary through the whole story is joy. She still sang the song. She still holds on to joy. How is it possible? I mean, how is it possible that there can be joy even though there is sadness and destruction all around you? And I think it's what we've been saying all morning. The joy that Mary expresses in the Christmas story is not relationship joy. It's not family joy. It's not job joy. It's the joy from the gospel. The joy that transcends even the little things that can go wrong. I mean, I'm not trying to say there's not true joy that comes from these things. Relationships and jobs and family and fun things that we can do and little things that we enjoy. There, there is joy that comes from those things, but these joys do not transcend. They do not stay with us. Deep sadness can wipe these joys away in an instant. So I want to close with just with reading one more passage that I think kind of summarizes what we're saying. First Peter 1, 6 through 9. It says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved, grieved by various trials. I'll stop there. In this you rejoice. Look up here for just another minute. We're going long today. In this you rejoice. What's the this in First Peter? If you go back to verse 3. In this we rejoice. In my family, in my comfort, in my step. No, that this is the living hope of verse 3. Jesus Christ. That's who we rejoice in. Though now for a little while. How long's a little while? Sound like my kids. How long's a little while? What do you think? How long's a little? Little while, this is depressing. It's your life. 
A little while is your whole life. And it's a little while, your life is a little while when you line that next up to eternity. And he's saying, what he's saying is, is you will face trials. And these trials might last your entire life. But in compared to eternity, it's nothing. Rejoice. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, this is faith, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. I really like that. I really like that. You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. Sometimes you can't express your joy. The message this morning isn't to just rejoice all the time, even when really bad things happen. I think Mary wept. I think Mary wept when she lost family and relationships and was shunned and made fun of, and she had this reputation. I'm not saying rejoice all the time. I'm saying it's okay to weep when hard things happen to you. But we rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. We don't even know how to express it. But even in sadness, we can say, God, my joy is in you because of the gospel. And so this is our call to find joy that transcends, the joy that comes from Christ. We were watching the funeral this week online of Heather Joy Carter, one of our attenders here, Teeny Jones's sister, who passed away. She was 34 years old, passed away a couple weeks ago after battling breast cancer. Tragic, tragic. And as we're watching this funeral, the theme of the funeral was joy because her middle name was also Joy. And the, the message from the funeral, I mean, it's just, it's profound. The message of Heather living with joy, even in the midst of fighting cancer. And that's what everyone said, is that even in tragedy, Heather lived out her middle name. How is it possible? Only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to see who you are and what you've done for us as it truly is. Forgive us for when we get used to the facts of what you've done in our lives, that we respond with boredom. Give us this kind of joy when we realize what you've done for us on the cross. May we worship you out of our joy. May we fall on our faces, surrendering whatever it is because of joy. And like we've heard this morning, God, I pray that we would this joy would transcend even when sadness is all around us. But God, we need your help with that. Give us the grace to respond with joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.